15% or more on my car insurance. This is like, can I just keep going back and forth between insurance companies saving 15% until it's free? Like, is this possible? Right, you're all thinking the same thing, which is our pastor's an idiot. Uh, no, no, you're all thinking this is too good to be true, right? This is too good to be true. We hear these things, we see these things, and we are skeptical, and we're skeptical for good reason because, of course, they are too good to be true. None of those things, uh, they're probably all calls I got this week, uh, none of them are worth even paying attention to because it's, it's nonsense. It's too good to be true. It's a scam. It's, it's bait to get you to buy something or, or send money or, or whatever, right? And so that is, uh, there's this, this natural kind of hesitation we have when we see something that is too good to be true, we approach it with skepticism. And that's what's happening here in this passage. The, the disciples are seeing Jesus standing in their midst, and they are saying, is this too good to be true? It must be too good to be true. There was, there's a passage here, I don't know if you caught it, verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, and it goes on from there. And uh, Tim and I were talking about that this week. Uh, what does that mean? They disbelieved for joy? I couldn't wrap my head around that for a while. And, and finally, I, I uh, resorted to, to reading the, the great Charles Spurgeon, of course, then it makes perfect sense. Disbelieving for joy, it, it, it's another way of saying it's too good to be true. They were so joyful after having endured such hardship, after having seen their, their, their beloved Savior and friend murdered on the cross to see his body buried, they were so overcome with joy they could not allow themselves to believe it. Like this, our, our eyes are playing a trick on ourselves, or we're seeing a spirit. This is, this is uh, something to, to dupe us or trick us. This can't be true, right? They cannot believe them, uh, their own eyes. They cannot believe what they are seeing. This has got to be too good to be true. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I want to I look at something we need to know and something we need to do. I think that's what this passage primarily is telling us. Two things. Number one, something we need to know. Is this too good to be true or not? And something we need to do. If this is not too good to be true, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we respond? How do we live in this knowledge? So let's, let's get right into it. Something to know. Uh, as, as, we, as we look at this, I think it's helpful to, to kind of see the whole context, to set the scene here for you. Because remember last week, Josh Rice preached to us about the, the two men, uh, or I'm sorry, we don't actually know if it's men, men women, or, or a mix there, but two uh, disciples who are on the way to Emmaus, uh, and, and this stranger comes up and starts walking with them and talking with them, uh, and, and at the end of this conversation, he opens up the scriptures to them, uh, he, he blows open their, their eyes, he, he blows open their mind, they can see that it is Jesus, and then he disappears, he vanishes. And they are, they are just, oh, that was Jesus. I knew it. I was, my heart was burning inside me. So they book it. Uh, in the evening, they book it all the way back to Jerusalem. They were fleeing the city, probably trying to stay away from the persecution that was coming. They go running back to Jerusalem, and they find the 11. And that's where this story takes place. So those two and the 11 disciples, we, we have 11, not 12, of course, because of Judas, right? We've got 11 disciples. We have th those two and maybe a few others in the room. They are discussing these things. Um, they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. 
But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Uh, this this is, is it's just so incredible. And, and I also think this is one of the funniest spots in all of Scripture. I don't know if you catch that, but like these guys have this experience with Jesus on the road. Simon had seen Jesus. Uh, some of the women had seen Jesus. They are huddled in this room. The doors are locked. They're talking and debating, is it possible? Is it true? No, it can't be true. You guys saw something. You're delusional, right? All, this debate is happening. And as it's happening, I just kind of, Jesus is suddenly there in a locked room and he just kind of comes up behind them as they're talking. What are we talking about? What's going on? It's the same thing he did to the, the, the guys uh, or the disciples on the road uh, that we looked at last week. It just like so casual. It's hilarious, right? I mean, this is, we have to see the irony. And I mean, I think it's understandable. Jesus had just endured like un, unfathomable torture and, and, and crucifixion. He had been sweating blood over what had to happen. But that's now done. The grave is completed. The cross is done. And Jesus gets to kind of enjoy this a little bit, right? I think he's enjoying himself a little bit as he reveals himself to his disciples kind of in these phases. He says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Why would you think it would go any other way? I've been telling you for years that this is exactly what would happen. But although he had told them that he was going to be crucified, he told them that he was going to rise three days later. They're in this moment and they still cannot believe it. They have been on this, this emotional roller coaster. They have, they have been on the highest of highs, right? When, when Jesus goes uh, strolling into Jerusalem and, and the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Like, here is victorious Jesus coming into the city finally. The Savior we've been waiting for, after all of this sneaking around, Jesus is going to take his rightful place, right? And he throws all the money changers out of the temple, and it's like this big, grand, victorious thing. They're on this emotional high, and then it drops in a matter of a week. And in fact, even all the way up to the Last Supper, I mean, they, they think things are going really well. And hours later, Jesus is arrested, and they suddenly drop. And of course, emotional roller coaster. I was thinking about uh, my family's recent trip to Disneyland. We road tripped it down to Disneyland, took our kids there for the first time. And I, I convinced my second daughter, Cora, uh, who's eight years old and, and a little timid sometimes, I convinced her to go with me and my oldest daughter, Ruby, on the Tower of Terror. Uh, oh, you can see already this is a bad idea. Great. Uh, this is like parenting failure. Uh, that I just have to confess. I'm like, buddy, it's going to be so fun. It's renamed now. It's, it's the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, it, it's, it's not like spooky ghosts. I think you're going to love it. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be some drops and stuff. Well, they, they did do away with the ghosts, but then they also like uh, multiplied the amount of drops and sudden like launches in this thing. So we, we get in, we, we buckle in. She's like getting super nervous. She's like, I don't know about this, Dad. It's like, well, too late now, buddy. Uh, we're, like, we're, we're on this thing. Uh, and and the, the thing backs up and, and uh, the ride starts. And then the lights go dark and they shoot you up into the air. Like, I don't know how many stories up in the air. And you're just like thrown down into the seat. And she loses her mind. She is terrified, like I have never seen her terrified. And I'm realizing what a terrible, terrible, terrible person I am. 
Like, I, I have just betrayed my daughter. She's never going to trust me again. And then you start dropping, and then, you know, at one point the doors open, you can see the whole Disneyland park, and it's like, oh, beautiful, and then you drop again. So this is, this is what the disciples are going through, right? They're being launched up and down on this uh, emotional tower of terror, okay? And then it gets to the point on the ride uh, that it stops, you're at the bottom, it's settled, and, and my daughter's like shaking, she's crying, and she's like, is it done? Just tell me it's done. I'm like, buddy, it's done. They launch us again. Like, come on. Like, the guy's listening. He's like, oh, they're going again. Uh, so... <laughs> And it just kept going and going, oh my word. So finally it's done. But that's this moment right here, right? They finally think, it, they had the highs, they had the lows, the arrest, the, is he going to get off? They, they release Barabbas instead. It's this up and down, up and down. And then finally he's dead. He's in the grave. It's over. It's over. We thought it was something, but it was nothing. It's all over. And, and, and they're, they're beginning to process. It's been three days. They're beginning to wrap their heads around what does life mean now that Jesus is gone? And at that moment, this thing shoots up again. The women show up and say, we saw Jesus. And there's a little bit of hope. Is that possible? And then Cephas, Peter, says, I, Jesus talked to me. What? And it, a, a little bit more. And then these two guys from, you know, who were running away come running back. We just had a conversation with Jesus. And now he is standing in front of them. So from the lowest of low, now back up to the highest of high, and they are in complete and utter shock and disbelief. We have no idea whether or not we should believe this. And as I said, the, the, the verbiage here that Luke uses is they disbelieved for joy. So here's the, the big something we need to know, which is this is not, in fact, too good to be true. This is a very good thing, but this is a thing that we can trust. This is a thing that is, that is verified. This is a thing that is trustworthy. It is, it, it is good, and it is true. It's not too good to be true. I think that, that a lot of us can feel the same way the disciples do in this moment in our lives. And, and I, I think probably many of us in this room, I know that I have felt this way myself, I've been at a point where I'm saved, right? The Lord has saved me. He has been merciful to me. I, I no longer have to fear death. I will be with Jesus forever. And then I start, uh, I, the, the thoughts start to creep in. Is it, isn't this too good to be true, though? Isn't this too easy? Is it possible that the Lord would really forgive me? I mean, I get that that works for some other people, but like, I just continue to stumble, I continue to fail. Like the, the deeper I grow with Jesus, the, the deeper I realize how sinful my heart is. Like layers upon layer of, of sin. And it, it, this, can't, this can't be, right? This is too good to be true. And, and I don't know if, if uh, I don't know how many of you, I don't know which of you have felt this way, but I know that I have felt this way, where, where at times it, it feels like my faith, my salvation is it's just too good to be true. Uh, Charles Spurgeon gives, gives two reasons for this, and I think they're worth mentioning. The first is unworthiness, and the second is simplicity. The first is unworthiness, that, that we see that we are unworthy. And I think that, in fact, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we will grow in our understanding of how unworthy we are. When we become Christians, we see that we're a little bit unworthy, and some of us more than others. But as we grow in, in, in our faith and as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we, we realize 
like, oh, I am unworthy like I didn't even realize. I am so unworthy. I am so beneath what whatever I thought I was. I am so much uh, lower than God and he is so much holier than me. And it's that unworthiness that can make us feel like this is too good to be true. And, and secondly, it's the simplicity of it. Maybe if salvation was something that was really hard, that took a lot of discipline and a lot of years, over a course of years, we would begin to uh, understand and believe that we are being saved. Which of course is absurd, right? Like, what hard thing could I do to add to Jesus' death on the cross? What self-discipline would add anything at all to the perfect spotless lamb dying on the cross for my sins as my substitute? What could I add to that? What sinful arrogance it is for me to think that I can add to Jesus' death on the cross for my own salvation? It is, it is absurdity, but it, this is what we do. This is what we do. And, and he gives us none of, none of this slow, hard salvation. It's so simple. It's so simple. We believe and we are saved. And, and in talking about this passage, Charles Spurgeon said this, and I just have, have to quote it because I can't come up with anything better. Most of this, by the way, is ripped off from one great preacher or another. Uh, it's, it's not too good to be true, for I have received it, says Spurgeon, standing in, in front of his church teaching. And I would say and echo the same. He said, if I had to guess which man in this congregation would not be saved, I should not have guessed any man but myself. Right? I look at my heart, I examine my heart as Spurgeon did his I go, if somebody's not going to be saved here, it's, it's me. And yet, I am saved. This is, this is proof number one for you that this is not too good to be true because if I can be saved, you can be saved. And I know you don't know all the depths of the sin of my heart, but let me just tell you, if I can be saved, you can be saved. Guaranteed. No problem. So to help them believe... And to help them understand what's really happening, Jesus does a couple of things here. Um, I, he, he eats some fish. Like, he's, he's showing them that he has a real body and real flesh and that he's hungry. And I can just imagine, and in fact, I mean, as you, as you read this, it's, it's so great. While they still disbelieve for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and I just imagine, like, shocked, wide eyes, no one has blinked, right, since they realized Jesus is in the room, and they go over, somebody grabs the fish, and they set it down on the plate, or on the, on the table, and they back up, and they're just staring at him, watching him eat, and Jesus is digging in, I am famished, like, you would not believe, it feels like I've been to hell and back, man, I, so, don't read into the theology there, okay, uh, <laughs> Uh, right, so this is what's going on. He eats, he shows them, I, this is real body. He shows the, the hands, his hands and his feet, the, the wound in his side. I'm really resurrected. You're not seeing a spirit. You're not seeing a ghost. You're not seeing a, a hallucination. This is real Jesus. He wants them to understand, I am really resurrected as I said I would be. I'm sitting here before you eating this fish, which no one else is enjoying with me. I don't know why. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm real, I'm here. And then the second thing he does to help them believe, verse 45, he opened to them the scriptures. 
He opens them the scriptures. And this is the same word. If, if you remember, if you were here last week, uh, Josh Rice talked about uh, the eyes of the guys on the road being burst open. Right? It translates in English just to open. But, but he burst open their eyes. It's like suddenly they were aware. They, they were made, made uh, like so aware of, of who he is. This same exact word here, right? He, he opened their minds. He burst open the scriptures. He burst open their minds to see and understand who he is. And he starts walking through the scriptures to explain that they are all pointing to him. All of the Old Testament, this is all uh, foreshadowing and pointing to and indicating me, says Jesus. And that I would come and that I would die in this way and that I would be raised three days later as you are witnessing right now in the flesh. Read your Bible, people, please. We must read our Bibles. The way in which the resurrected Jesus convinces his followers that he is real and risen and they are not hallucinating is he reads the Bible to them. He does a Bible study. We should read our Bibles. We should know this. Yes, it is a spiritual discipline. Yes, it is a good thing to do. Yes, as Christians, we should be doing this, not for salvation, but out of pure joy. This is how we know Jesus. This is how we have assurance of our salvation. This is how we can, can be assured that this is not too good to be true, but is very real and very true. Very real and very true. Let us not discount God's word having never read it. I've, I've talked to people before. I did street ministry years ago and, and talked to a guy, and he's like, I just can't believe the Bible because of all the contradictions in it. I was like, oh, interesting. I pulled a Bible out of my pocket. <laughs> and I'm like, can you show me some? Like, let's talk about it. He's like, well, I don't know where they're at. I'm like, oh, okay. Have you ever read it? He's like, well, no, but just people said there's contradictions. I'm like, okay. Why don't you read it and see if there's contradictions? Like, let's start there, man. Like, don't discount God's word. Don't write it off as too good to be true without actually investigating and seeing that, you know, what it actually says. So let's do as Jesus did, open the scriptures and see that this is not too good to be true, but this is very, very true. These are some of the things which God's word tells us about the simplicity and the fullness of the salvation we receive. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Are we unworthy? Yes. That's the first prerequisite to salvation. You've got to be unworthy. You have to be totally incapable of saving yourself. Then we come to Jesus. He died for the ungodly. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, period. We believe and we are not condemned. It's simple and it's complete. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of my uh, favorite verses now is I got to read that to my uh, grandfather, as many of you probably remember the story. Um, just a, a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, I get to read that over my grandfather as he died, uh, having become a Christian hours before his death. And he was wrestling with the guilt. Is it possible? Is this too good to be true? I have run away from God for 91 years. This is too good to be true. No, no, no. Listen, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no other... Uh, there's no other additions to that. It, it is that simple and it is that sweet. It is not too good to be true. It is exactly what God has ordained for us. 
So there's something for us to know, and, and that is that it is not too good to be true. And then uh, finally, there's something for us to do. There's something for us to do. Verse 48, Jesus says to his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. They were witnesses to what had happened. And he said, you need to go proclaim repentance to everyone. You are witnesses, and if you back up to verse 47, uh, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The witnesses that have seen it are tasked with going and proclaiming repentance. And as they made witnesses, right, they, they tell people what they have seen and heard and experienced. Now those people can witness to what they have seen and heard and experienced and so on and so on and so on and here we are meeting in a hay shed, preaching the gospel because we have seen and heard these things. They were witnesses then and we are witnesses now. It is my job, it is your job, it is everyone here in this room. We have seen and we have heard and we have understood these things about Jesus. We have seen and heard and understood the resurrection. Now we need to go and proclaim repentance. We need to go and proclaim the gospel. We need to go and proclaim the good news that sin can be forgiven. All we have to do is repent and believe. That's what we are to do. We're to be witnesses proclaiming repentance everywhere to everyone. The people we work with, our neighbors, our families, our kids. My, my wife stays at home with, with our kids right now. We have six young kids in the house. She has a job to be a witness proclaiming repentance to our children. That is so important. We're, we're growing a small nation in our house. She's saving the nation, starting, starting with ours. Uh, we, need to, we need to proclaim this repentance. Now, I, I think it's helpful in just my last few minutes to explain what, what is repentance. We should understand this thing we are to proclaim and, and witness to the world around us. We, we need to understand repentance. Um, first of all, I would, I would point out that repentance is in the beginning and it's in the end. So Jesus starts his ministry by talking about repentance, and we just saw that he ends his ministry. One of the last words he spoke before ascending is proclaim repentance. In the beginning, Matthew uh, 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus starts with repentance and he ends with repentance. The Christian's life starts with repentance. I think we all get that. God, I am a sinner, please forgive me. But it ends with repentance. And I think we miss that. I think we miss that as Christians. I think that Christians have a tendency, this dreadful tendency, to outgrow repentance. I know that I do. So I'm not putting this on anyone else, but if you're, if you're like me, you maybe have this tendency, this wicked tendency inside your heart to want to outgrow repentance because well, I've been walking with the Lord for a while now. I should have my stuff together. I, should be, uh, I, I shouldn't be wrestling with the same kinds of sins and stuff. And so we become hesitant to share with one another how we fail and how we sin. And we look around a, a room like this and we go, well, they've got it together and they've got it together and they've got it together. I guess I need to look like I've got it together. I think we stop repenting sometimes. 
Not all of us. And I praise God for those of you who repent daily, frequently, who've been walking with the Lord for decades, and, and you walk in repentance. That is amazing. But I want to warn many of us to understand that, that we need to be continually coming to God. Alistair Begg says uh, on repentance, have you ever come to God and said, I am in the wrong? Like that's ultimately what, what repentance is. It's just like an acknowledgement, I'm wrong. We're in a world today that never admits fault. No one ever admits they were wrong. How many politicians have we seen have one position and then have an opposite position and never an acknowledgement that there was ever a moment in between those? Like, wait, if you had this position and then this position and these are not the same position, weren't you wrong either then or now? No, of course not. Uh, right, we, th this world, man, we, we, never, we never admit fault. Never admit fault. Never, never say, never confess that you were wrong. But that, that's not what God calls us to. This is repentance. God, I'm in the wrong. I was wrong on this. I was wrong to do that. I was wrong to do this. I was wrong not to help that person. I was wrong not to give to this effort. God, I was wrong. We, we need to do that. We need to confess to God when we are wrong. Repentance is in the beginning and it is in the end. Um, I, I have to... <laughs> I have to tell the story. I, I think oftentimes Christians are closer to godliness uh, at the beginning of our walk than sometimes a decade later or more. And, and I use this as an example. A good friend of mine, he knows I tell this story. I won't use his name uh, for his protection. But some of you know who he is. Uh, awesome dude. Came out of the military. Uh, came to Outward. Was wrecked over his sin. Uh, he had a conversation with Matt Porter and... and and just, I remember this, this day so clearly. It's the last guy sitting in the chairs uh, as everybody leaves. And he's like, I've done horrible things. Horrible things. There's no way God could forgive me. And of course, God does forgive him. He becomes a Christian. But he had a pretty rough background. And, and, and the, the Lord was gracious. And we moved into the building where, where Salem meets now. And we needed a bunch of guys to move a bunch of furniture from the location we were at to the new location. And and anyway, uh, my, my buddy helps load, he's a big dude, helps unload all this furniture. And then we're praying for this furniture. Uh, we're all circled around praying. And, uh, and he's just as raw as they come. Brand new Christian, right? Right out of the military. And we're praying and we're going around the circle, everybody's praying. And it comes to him and he's like, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for, for giving this building to this church. God, I don't even know how you do it. I'm so effed up. Just starts dropping F-bombs in prayer. We're like, whoa, is this okay? <laughs> Listen, though, that's the coolest prayer I've ever heard in my life. It is from the heart. It's raw. It's true. It's real. He was so grateful. And then afterwards, I was like, hey, just so you know, uh, maybe drop less F-bombs in, like, you know, corporate prayer. Leave that for prayer at home, okay? Uh, <laughs> but it's like... That's how we come to the Lord, I think, sometimes, and, and, and we don't know the expectations, and then we become Christians, and we're walking with them for a while, and we start to, we start to learn the expectations, we start to try to, uh, we learn how to kind of clean ourselves up, and, and we try to keep up this appearance of having it together, and we can forget about repentance. That's tragic, right? R remember the story, Luke 18, 
the, the, the Pharisee comes and he says, God, thank you that I am so good and I do this and I do this and I keep all these commandments and I, and I don't do those things and, and God, I'm so glad I'm not like this guy over here, this sinner. And what's happening over there? This sinner is down on his knees and he's beating his breast and he just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, one of these men returned to their homes justified. It's not the guy who's got it all together. It's the guy repenting, right? Let us always, always be repenting. We do not have to have it all together. We do not have to hide our sin. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's what he was doing. He was dealing with all of that. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. And this does a couple things for us. Uh, Number one... Uh, it, it frees us as we go and we witness, right? As we're witnesses proclaiming repentance, we have no pressure. Because whether or not a person repents is all of the Holy Spirit. Whether or not you and I repent is all a work of the Holy Spirit. That's got to be God working in us, producing in us repentance, producing in us even a desire to repent. And if you don't have a desire to repent, here's a great place to start. God, I. I, I want the desire. Matt, Matt Porter has said before, like, I want to want this. I, I don't want it yet, but God, would, would you give me the desire to want this? And I think that's a wonderful place to start. I think that's so good. And I think God always will answer that prayer. If, if, if you even just have a sliver of faith, a sliver of hope, a sliver of desire, the Holy Spirit's already at work. He's already doing his thing. He's already producing that in you. So lean into that. That's how it happens with us. Uh, Another quote from from Spurgeon, I just can't help myself. Man can sin and he can continue in it, but to leave the hateful element is a work for which he needs a power divine. We can sin on our own just fine, but to leave sin, to repent, that we need the Holy Spirit for. And when we go and we proclaim... We take all the pressure off ourselves. All we got to do is we just got to tell the good news. And then we trust that the, that the Holy Spirit does his thing, and he's going to produce repentance in people. And he's going to draw people to himself. And that's not what we have to do. We just have to, we just have to be witnesses. We know that Jesus has risen. And we know that it is not too good to be true. And we we. We know what we're to do, right? We're to be witnesses proclaiming repentance. I hope you can see that, and I hope you can own that, and I hope as a church we can be about that. But before we go and proclaim repentance to anyone else, we need to proclaim repentance here. We need to be a people repenting. We need to not have outgrown repentance, as as ridiculous as that notion even is. But we need to be a people repenting all the time. One of the ways we do that is communion. And so the, the, the ushers are going to come forward with communion here in just a minute. And, and what we're going to do, we're going to take communion. Uh, we're going to do things just a little bit different than we normally do. Normally we'd take it together, right? We would take the, the bread and we'd take the juice. I'm going to change that just a little bit. I'm, I'm going to let you take it in your own time here while the band plays their first song. What I want you to do before you take the elements is let's repent. Just silently to yourself, between you and God, let's repent. Let's be a people repenting. Repent for the first time ever 
or repent for the 10th time today, but let's repent. Let's repent of our sins. We'll repent of our pride, repent of our self-righteousness, repent of our hidden sin, repent of our stubbornness, repent of that relationship you've been engaging in that you know is kind of stepping over the line a little bit. Repent of that. Return to him. Repent over uh, your overindulgence and your gluttony that you just can't seem to kick. Repent of the inappropriate images you've allowed yourself to look at. Repent of the obsession you fostered with your work and your career. Repent of the false god of money that you've been sacrificing your family for. Repent of your drunkenness. Repent of your manipulation, your lies, your short temper. Repent of your failures, our failures as husbands. Repent of your failures as wives. Let's repent of our failures as parents. Let's repent of the dishonor we've shown to our parents. Let's repent from the fear of man which has kept us from being witnesses, proclaiming repentance. Let's repent. We'll turn from our sins. Repent to the Lord who is merciful. Repent and find peace. Remember that Jesus says, he is in the midst of his disciples and he says, peace to you. Then he says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? We bring up these sins to repent of them, not to dwell on them. Not to be conquered by them, not to feel bad, quite the opposite. We remember our sins to repent and not beat ourselves up or remain in sorrow, but to know that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. The more we face our sins and our failures, the more we can worship Jesus. That's why we're going to repent in communion today. We're going to repent because as we let go of that and recognize that Jesus died on the cross for that, we can see that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We repent and then we can rejoice. How great is Jesus that he dealt with all of that. Ushers, would you come forward and would you stand up and get communion uh, together? Let's, let's grab the, the bread and the juice. Just take a moment silently. Let's repent. Let's turn back to him. Take the elements in your own time and let's worship together.